learning is a consequence of thinking. And so, again, a lot of what we do is look at how to support thinking for children, for adults, how to create cultures of thinking in the classroom. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So this week on Learning Unboxed, we are going to talk about progressive education and the intersection with Project Zero and a whole lot of real creative people um, out there in the world trying to make teaching learning future of work very relevant and right now. But the secret to this conversation is this work has been going on for many years and it's having quite the impact. So we want to dig into that as well. Uh, so joining us today, Mara Krzyzewski, who is joining us. She is a senior researcher from Project Zero, um, which is one of the research centers at Harvard Graduate School of Education. And we've talked about Project Zero actually before when we um, spoke with the Columbus Museum of Art and the work that they've been doing it. Um, but we will revisit that um, just a little bit with Mara. And Project Zero's mission is to understand and enhance learning, thinking, and creativity for individuals and groups in the arts and other disciplines. So welcome. Thank you. And and joining Mara um, is a local legend in central Ohio, um, uh, Dr. Fred Burton, um, who has spent 44 years actually as an educator in progressive education. And the reason that, uh, that I know him and so many in town is because for 13 years, he was the principal of Whitcliffe Progressive Elementary School, which is a public school in Upper Arlington, Ohio. And it is is known locally, regionally, statewide as one of the gems in elementary education in the state. And uh, we hold it up all the time as the exemplar of what you want to see happening in elementary school. So Fred, we're really excited to have you join us today as well. Glad to be here. So I want to get started first and foremost, and either one of you can jump in since you had some pre-conversation around who is going to do what. Um, I, I don't want to take anyone's thunder, but I really do want to spend a lot of time talking about this concept of what the heck is progressive education and you know why do we want to spend time thinking about that? So for our listeners, what's progressive education? Well, I don't mind starting uh, on that. Progressive education, I mean, there's you can look at it historically. Progressive education was part of, in the early 1900s, the progressive movement in our in the United States. So it was kind of a subset. There were there were settlement houses like the Hull House in Chicago, and um, just you know a lot of immigrants coming in that sort of thing. And but what I really pushed at Wycliffe Progressive School was living the progressive tradition. Today, So we could talk a lot about Dewey and Francis Barker and all of those, but what does it mean to live um, those progressive values? And we created a set of 10 principles at Wycliffe uh, to guide us. So no matter what was happening out in the larger world, that these were kind of core principles that we would revisit every once in a while. Uh, one example of one principle would be respecting diversity among children and variation in their development. 
um, and putting an emphasis on how children learn. So uh, I, I think, you know, I would talk about what does it look like today? And maybe we can talk a little bit more about that as we go. I don't know if Mara, if you want to add anything, uh, take to that or not. Yeah, I think one of the key tenets of progressive education that we've thought a lot about and explored in various projects at Project Zero is this notion of understanding as a performance. Understanding is, or performative, understanding is something that you do with what you learn. It's not something you have or possess. And that just informs everything that we do, um, as well as this phrase that Dave Perkins often likes to say, which is that learning is a consequence of thinking. And so, again, a lot of what we do is look at how to support thinking for children, for adults, how to create cultures of thinking in the classroom. Yeah, and let's dig into that just a little bit because I want to make sure that our listeners have a really good context for the the intersection between Fred and Fred's work, for example, at Wycliffe and the broader progressive education movement generally, and specifically the work of Project Zero. Um, because again, we it, it we keep bumping up against Project Zero on this program because of the variety of different groups that we talk to that are also utilizing or part of that effort. So help our listeners who might not have listened before understand the work of Project Zero and how it intersects here. Project Zero has been around for over 50 years, and we actually were started by Nelson Goodman, who was a philosopher of the arts. And at the time, because of the launching of Sputnik, there was a lot of work that was being done in science education, but very little was known about the arts and how they develop in children. So Goodman said we were starting from zero. But since then, we've expanded and we look at all disciplines And we have a wide range of projects, but across all of those projects, we're always asking the same three questions. First is, what does learning look like? Second is, how and where do thinking and learning thrive? And third is, and Dave Perkins would say this is the hardest question in education, what's worth learning today and tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And so really across our projects, we are looking to support Um, You know, we see learning as fundamentally social. And so we're looking to support both children and adults and and question people's assumptions about who's the learner and who's the teacher in the classroom in order to create these thriving cultures of of thinking that will result in learning and this, this particularly important notion of transfer or that children are able to apply what they've learned in one setting to a new new context. Which is critically important if you think about sort of the lifelong aspect and impact of this collective work. And um, it's perfect segue um, because I, I watched the impact of the work that's happened locally in this space on a fairly regular basis. Um, Fred, you may not realize it, but a, a fair number of kids who went to Whitcliffe have found themselves at past past Innovation Lab or in our partner in residence school, Metro. So I see a fair number of those kids and have historically over a number of years um, since the, uh, the STEM program here is about 12 years old, I think at this point now. It's been a while. But over those 12 years, I have seen any number of the kiddos that have gone through that experience. And and I think that's a really great space because I see 
the difference, a marked difference between the kids who have come out of the progressive experience and the teaching and learning and the processes that you've put in place at Whitcliffe is very, very different than the kids who are coming from more of a traditional setting. And the place I see it more often than not is the kiddos that have come out of the Whitcliffe experience, they they demonstrate three key things. First and foremost, they're fearless speakers. They are comfortable sharing what they know or sharing what they think. And that is not the case with kids broadly coming out of traditional settings. When you put them in an environment that has an expectation that they know how to think critically and problem solve, but more importantly, that they know how to work collaboratively and to share out. And that's one of the things that I definitely see coming out of the kids who've had this experience. I also see um, that they're great problem solvers. And the other piece that I see is they value diversity in ways that I don't always see from other kids. And so we'll get into the to the weeds of how you manage that in a school setting. But I think the bigger question that many of our educators are going to ask is, you know, as a principal or as a leader um, uh, in a building that is, is, is teaching and learning this way, how do you ensure that, that your faculty is with you? Right, because you know that's that's a lot of what's happening right now is there's lots of transition happening in education, and COVID has only accelerated that. And the question I get every single day is, how do I get everybody to go down the road, whatever the new road's going to be, with me? How do you do that, Fred? Yeah, I I love that love that question, and I, I love your observations as well. Uh, I mean, that's for me, that's like the best test we can give <laughs> our kids is what you're actually observing versus you know what's you know, measurable. Right. It's not everything that's uh, valuable is measurable. So one of the first thing, and I'll, I'll start talking and, and Mayor, feel free to, mm-hmm. to kind of bust in here because you spent a lot of time with uh, me and the faculty and the kids and parents at Wycliffe. Um, one thing I, I, a good starting point is that I've never, I never hired the best teachers in all the, the years that I was there. I never tried to hire the best teachers. I always tried to hire the best learners because the best learners are always the best teachers. And so, you know, if you're going to model something for kids, you have to be a risk taker. You have to be willing to embrace diversity and to collaborate and do all of those things at the adult level. In terms of principles, I've mentored a a few, and principalships and leaders that go bad are usually ones that come into a setting and say, okay, here's what I want to change. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of ignoring what's already right there in front of them. And I, I kind of liken it to the, the being a principal uh, as a bulldozer versus a push lawnmower. Uh, you know, a bulldozer, you set up really high in the seat and you kind of look around and you just kind of run over everything. Where a push lawnmower, which I'm thinking of my own front yard, which is really bumpy. And so, you know, living in schools and in communities can be really bumpy stuff. But it, it's the and the push idea of a mower too is that I always try to once you hire the best learners you always try to push them as much as possible while protecting them from things that aren't really all that important. I know there would be things at administrative meetings which would raise my blood pressure, but how I left that meeting and came back to Wycliffe, now I had a choice. I could raise everybody else's blood pressure. Let me call a meeting really quick and, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and get everybody else 
But instead, we just continually try to put the emphasis on learning, on the process of learning. And that's what the 10 principles were for, to ground us, remember what are the great success indicators for a, a school with high standards. And, and I mean, and I asked a group of parents a while back, you know, uh, what kind of standards do you, what are the highest standards you want for your child? And I've asked hundreds actually of parents this, and none of them have ever said, well, I want them all to be in the 99th percentile right. on this particular <laughs> test. They all say things like you just observed in, yep. in your setting. You know, I want them to be collaborative. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I want them to value diversity. I want them to be kind. And I want them to be, you know, engaged and all of those kinds of things. So we just, if you hire really good people and if you bring parents in as real co-educators and not just partners, and I can talk about that later because I'm going to stop talking right now. And just see if, if Mara, if you want to add anything uh, to that. I just wanted to add one anecdote because I remember going to Wycliffe and um, Tamara Soren, one of the teachers outside of her classroom, had a big piece of chart paper and it asked, what kind of learner do you want your child to be? And parents were signing it. And one of the responses was any kind. And I just loved that because of the <laughs> acknowledgement. We're all, you know. As long as they're learning, there are many different ways to go about it, and any kind would be just fine. Yeah. So then, if you sort of, you know, to double down, I guess on that, how do you, how do you, how do you respond to the parents or the community, or quite frankly, even other teachers or administrators who will say, "Hey, you know what we've been doing, or the 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 traditional educational model." Is just fine. Why do we need this other thing? You know, how how do you, or, or what does that conversation look like? I, I, you know, I, I'm tempted to say, how do you convince them otherwise? But I've been at this long enough to know that you can't do that. They have to, they have to choose to be there with you. And oftentimes folks, that's not the choice that they've made um, for a whole host of reasons. So what does that conversation look like? Right. And, and so at, at Wycliffe, we would have uh, kind of a continual flow of uh, prospective parents that would within our district and people who lived outside of our district who were willing to move into our district. But I, and I would hear things one day, I would hear things like, well, the parent uh, grapevine has said that Wycliffe is really for special needs students because you really value the individual and, you know, you, you just aren't rigid and that sort of thing. The next day I would hear a parent say, I hear Wycliffe's for the gifted kids uh, you know, because you let them go as far as you can. And, and basically what I would say to them is that Wycliffe's for all children. It's not for all adults or parents. Mm-hmm. And, and so really the parent piece and, and their passion and buy-in to the values, I don't want to spend 98% of my time, either with teachers or parents, trying to convince, uh, you know, a, few per, a small percentage of people that they ought to see things my way. Mm-hmm. I just want to create this culture that they go, wow, I want to be part of that. And that's what usually happened. Parents would come in and they would feel, they would see kids in the hall working uh, on their own uh, and together in groups without an adult right on top of them. They'd see mm-hmm. all this engaging artwork uh, that was expressed, you know, so they were expressing their learning, not only mathematically and through words, but through the arts as well and movement, that sort of thing. And, and I think that was a, 
that was a big uh, a big part of how my conversations went with parents. I don't know if they always appreciated it if I say, you know, it's for your kid, but I don't know if it's for you or not. But I just try to be as frank and honest with them as possible. And I, I think that that's the best approach. And, you know, I certainly remember, you know, my experience of interviewing Whitcliffe, right? And, and Whitcliffe yeah. interviewing me, right? I mean, that is the reality of it. You go there to sort of find out. And it's, it's part of that positive experience tied to that. Really important. And so, so Mira, part of what Fred was talking about is really the essence of making learning visible, Correct. So, so share with us, what exactly does that mean? What, what is that all about? Because Fred is correct. You could never, I, I mean, and I've in and out of Wycliffe for many years, A, when my child was there, but since then, you know, all the different groups from around the world that I've very deliberately taken there to sort of see what was going on. And you can't walk in that, that building or the old building. I haven't been in the new one yet. Um, and to, and you, everywhere you go, there are children in the hallways doing things. Right, they're they're not walking from space to space. They are literally camped out on the floor. They're doing, there there's 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 pieces. There's work all over the building. It's a an incredibly collaborative and iterative place. And the minute you walk through the door, you know, even before you see a child or an adult, or somebody even stops you, you've gotten four feet down the hall. You know, you're in a really unique and special place. So, how does that relate? I think that question gets at the heart of, um, well, progressive education and many, maybe any education. So much of what we need to address or have a discussion about in this work is, is that first question that I mentioned um, that Project Zero looks at, which is what does learning look like? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, would you say that learning is happening all the time? Some of the time? Mm, very rare. What would you point to that shows you that learning is taking place? Mm-hmm. And that's where the role of this concept from Reggio Emilia, these preschools in Northern Italy, around documentation um, comes to the fore. Because I remember at Wycliffe, we would have parent-teacher meetings where we would show examples of children learning and ask parents, where do you see group learning or individual learning even happening? And what can you point to? um, Where would you direct our attention? And you come up with very different kinds of answers and you have, you provoke people's assumptions about what learning looks like. We had worked with uh, some secondary school teachers in Italy as well. And we had asked the teachers to bring in um, documentation of students thinking. And some of the teachers brought in... um, you know, three 20-second video clips of girls, students giving the right answer. Now, would you say, is that where thinking is located? Um, Would you say thinking is located in perhaps making a mistake and learning from feedback in reflection on that learning? And so a lot of what we do, I think, is both about provoking people's notions about what learning looks like, as well as challenging assumptions about the relationship between the individual and the group and what's individual and what's um, based on social or group learning. Right. And, and then how do you, how do you take that experience? Because I do think that that, that 
is the conundrum in many ways at the heart of getting more communities, more educators, more schools to sort of think about the future of teaching and learning very differently. And then if you throw in the concept of the future of work into that, right? And what do we need as full, fully formed adults, citizens in a world that is shifting so incredibly rapidly, right? What we, what, what we used to do in education is not going to prepare us adequately for the world we're living in now, right? And so when you think about that, and Fred, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm specifically sort of thinking about that in your role now in working with through a variety of different uh, post-secondary institutions and working with, you know, training or even the work that you're doing with Martha Holdings Jennings right now, right, is really sort of in that space of helping um, professionals reframe the way they, A, they do what they do, but more importantly, they see the value of sort of where they're going, Yep. Right. And, yep. and so how, so my, my question here is, is really two, two pieces. So one of them is, is, is what does that driving sort of context look like as it relates to helping the next iteration of professionals in the sort of teaching and learning space look like? And, and more importantly, how do you help? I, I think folks naturally believe that anything's possible in elementary school, but that is not the case when we move into high school middle school, high school, and, and, and even into post-secondary. And I would argue it's actually the opposite that's true. But it's a tough, tough conversation to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly at, at the university, uh, in the various groups that I've been working with uh, post-secondary, I have a number, of a, a lot of students who are looking for um, just what do you want? What's the right answer? Just tell me what to do, and I'll check this off. And they, so uh, I have to disturb them a little bit and disrupt that whole thing by basically putting at the center. I, you know, in some ways, adults, uh, kids learn how I mentioned earlier how children learn is, and how adults learn. I think there's a lot of similarities, and mm-hmm. at the center is creating. Uh, I used to have a card that I kept with me when I was principal at Wycliffe, and it said, passion, joy, and imagination. And I said to myself, I, I'm the only one that knows about this, but now everybody, your listeners <laughs> know about this, the secret's out. But I just had it, and any time that I figured that I couldn't have passion, joy, and imagination in my work life, then I need to find something else, because I don't want to do you know, 20, 25 more years of mm-hmm. passionless, joyless uh, existence. And so with, with, uh, at the university, I try to create, uh, because interest drives achievement, I try to create an environment for them that, in the same way that I work with, with the way we worked at, with kids at Wycliffe, uh, and, and that had them making choices, and then um, kind of uh, playing out the consequences, uh, good, bad, and ugly with those choices. And it, it makes, and it's kind of a standard generation, you know, the, the group mm-hmm. that's coming to the university now, they're the ones who have been standardized and standardized tested for all their lives. And so I'm kind of going against the grain again and against mm-hmm. the culture to try to shake them out of it. And the good news is that they, that I find that they are, even though it creates some anxiety for them to be in project-based kinds of learning or the kinds of things, you know, you might be mm-hmm. doing in the past, mm-hmm. that they get through it and they, they feel happier and like they feel success and they feel a little bit of competence. 
And, uh, you know, then you get that kind of momentum going and, and, and then connect it to, hey, guess what? This is how your children in your classrooms uh, will need to experience learning and not just kind of memorizing things, but actually mm-hmm. learning in a way that creates something larger than just yourself. Or, you know, and, and that's what schools for democracy are, is to communicate those mm-hmm. kind of values, attitudes, and behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's, ab- but it's, rock, it's a rough road sometimes. <laughs> it is, but I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very valuable road worth running down. And, um, you know, we, we have visitors who come from all over the world to see the Innovation Lab. It's, it's a very unique place that was, that was built from a variety of different lenses. And, you know, our intent was to be a demonstration, but also to be a place where we could just unfettered, be really, really creative in that educational space, especially as it related to, to some industry pieces. And we definitely believe here that, um, you know, that every kid that walks in the door is infinitely capable of solving the world's greatest problems, right? And because we start with that premise, it means that you sort of think about the global experience, um, I think, a little bit differently. And, and the only reason I'm, I'm sharing this piece out is because I think it really touches on, A, what you said in my next question as well. But we, we, had, we had a group of kiddos that are working in one of the, the design labs. And we, 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 part of the thing that we, we've had happening with our instructors, and I had a group of a touring in, I believe they were from, a, from Alaska, a whole bunch of school districts that came all the way from outside of Anchorage to come and sort of see what it would look like if you immerse kids in a very uh, STEM problem or project-based environment. And you know, what does it look like? How do you facilitate that kind of thing? And the building, you know, you guys can see pieces of it. It's, it's a lot of glass because we really want to be able to observe and see, and we want learners to learn from each other. And we want learners to learn from across the way from each other, just, you know, all of those types of, of pieces. And they, the instructor walked into one of those labs. Um, you know, you can't see from afar what they're saying, but you can see all the kids. They're really, really intrigued. There's something that's about to happen. You can sort of witness it from afar, right? And I think that's part of the value in sort of seeing when, when learning is actually happening or visible in that case. And, you know, the instructor then dumps out on the table this box of, of stuff, parts, right? Um, and then more conversation happens. The, the, the instructor actually leaves the lab for a couple of hours, leaves the lab, doesn't go back in there, comes in and sits down at the table with me and this group of folks from, from, from afar. And, you know, and the conversation's going on. And at one point I have a, an administrator, you know, sort of interrupt the conversation goes, you know, I just need to stop. I have no idea what's going on over there, but I have never, ever in my entire career seen a, a space or an opportunity where obviously, you know, instructions were provided, um, the tools necessary to do, and that teacher can walk away. And the learning that's happening right now is far more robust than anything I've ever seen a teacher deliver in that moment. And in and, and my mind, that's that sort of joyous opportunity to say that's because these are empowered learners. Mm-hmm. Right. And that empowering of those learners can, in fact, be game changer. But it was also an empowered teacher, back to your point, Fred, right? Who's a complete confidence in what could go on in that space. Well, yeah. And I remember, you know, as a teacher, elementary school teacher myself, I, I can recall my best moments were sometimes when I would stand up and look around in my class and see that no one was needing me. Right. Uh, that they were just engaged. 
Or a visitor would walk into a classroom at Wycliffe and go, where's the teacher? Oh, exactly. they're over there kind of as a learner themselves. And mm-hmm. so I absolutely agree. I think that's that's well well put. Yeah, and very, I, I think that gets to the sort of essence of the work or the effort. So, so Samira, I'm a teacher, I'm an administrator, take your pick, it doesn't make any difference. But I have this, this opportunity, sort of blank slate to start a school from scratch. What, what are the two or three most important things that you would tell folks as they're getting ready to embark on an endeavor that's going to be very, very different based on the work that you've been doing? What, what, what's the foundational components to run down that road? And I'm asking very deliberately because, you know, I believe we are about to see on the horizon some pretty radical shifting that's going to happen in the educational landscape. And I think that although COVID and the pandemic have been unfortunate in so many different ways, it's also a free pass for innovation. Well, I have to say mo- much of my thinking has been influenced by this collaboration that um, my colleagues and I at Project Zero had with educators from Reggio Emilia. Mm-hmm. And one of the most profound things that I heard a kindergarten teacher say, which I think should be at the, or could be at the foundation of any new school is she used to, at her uh, parent-child teacher conferences, say to the parents or the caregivers, your child's education is not an individual pursuit. And I think that's very powerful. I think that we really need to, again, shake up what's individual and what's group. And do we need to start with the individual and then ultimately go out to the group? Or could you start with both? And in Reggio Emilia, before they even begin doing something with a child, they say, what can we do to communicate what you're learning with your friends or share what you're learning with your friends? They're asking kids to take the perspective of the other And that's going to support their own individual learning. And so this notion that learning, yes, it's absolutely for yourself, but it's also toward creating a shared, more public, common body of knowledge that will help to make the world better. I think if we could shift that schema, that would be really powerful. And I think the other thing, and this relates to what you and Fred were talking about earlier, is again, something that I learned from my experience with Reggio Emilia, which is... Loris Malaguzzi used to say that the goal of teaching is not to produce learning. It's to produce the conditions for learning. Mm -hmm. And I think the one qualification I would make on what you were saying is that means teachers have to really think about how are they going to set up the environment, the context, the materials, so that children can learn from and with each other. And then I would say this role of close observation and documenting what's going on in order to make the learning visible, but not just for the sake of making learning visible, for the sake of deepening the children's learning and thinking about, so where do we go next? Mm -hmm. So it's a, a different role for the teacher. And I think if those two things happened, we'd be in pretty good shape. I like what you said, uh, Mara, about the, the, the observing and slow observation uh, the sort of uh, teacher as kid watcher is, is something that Yetta Goodman, a, a literacy professor, said eons ago. Pat Carini said that speed is the enemy of quality. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, she, and Pat Carini is a, a progressive educator. 
And, and I think we need like Italy has the slow food movement. I think we need the slow education movement. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe that would be helpful. But no, I think to put any of these things into practice, and, and this is the thing that's always fascinated me the most, and it's the reason that I was at Wycliffe, is again, how do we actually live this in practical ways in a community where you're bumping elbows with people with lots of different perspectives? And so for any leaders, I, I'm, I'm working with K-12 through teachers, but I'm also working with administrators, and you have to have some processes available. It just doesn't happen magically. You have to, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, we had something at Wycliffe we called the one before two rule, and that is everybody gets a chance to speak once before anybody speaks twice. Mm -hmm. So you just make that space. You don't have to do that. And I actually got that. It's interesting. From uh, in Washington, D.C., when I was at the Supreme Court, there was an exhibit there. And, and, and this was years and years ago. This is a couple decades ago, where the exhibit was how they make decisions. And they were saying things like, yeah, we interrupt each other a lot. And sometimes we talk over each other. So we had to pose this rule on ourselves, one before two. <laughs> you know, it's these kinds of processes are really important. So leaders and, and then the whole community of learners, teachers, kids need mm -hmm. to take ownership and be able to say, um, you know, maybe we need to make space for other people or to model that in some way. But anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we hear, we hear the same sort of ideas and the same types of concerns from communities all the time, right? As they're trying to sort of figure out what, what it could or what it should look like. And so um, I want to thank both of you very much for uh, taking time today uh, to chat with us and share um, sort, of, sort of your journey um, and the insights and, and the lessons that you've learned along the way. And certainly for the work that you're doing, um, again, I can very much personalize it and say that um, you know, my own child's experience through progressive education has been incredibly meaningful. And quite frankly, um, you know, his experience um, has influenced a lot of the work that we do um, here at PASS and in the Innovation Lab that, you know, it's woven through. We, we may not necessarily call out, for example, Whitcliffe or progressive education all the time, but the reality of it is you can see the impact of that here um, almost every single day. So thank you both for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. This was fun. It's been lovely. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.